Hello, Ben. Hi, Agnes. How, how are, are you? <laughs> yeah, very well. We always say, how are you? I know. Like, I, don't know. I feel like no one else in the podcast world does this. That's true. <laughs> it's like... Okay. Um, well, what should we do? So, just, hello, Ben. I quite like it. But okay. I don't know. All right. What have you been up to this week? What have I been up to this week? Well, I have to confess, not a lot of work. Yes, um, I know this. <laughs> Because obviously it was the bank holiday weekend and I did take advantage of that and took a couple of extra days to head off into the mountains uh, above Geneva um, nice. to a lovely chalet in Chamonix. <laughs> I was, as ever, in Scotland for fun family reasons, um, where it was 27 degrees, Ben. Yikes. I packed three jumpers. It's been raining down here. I Implacable. know. People, November weather. People were in, swimming <laughs> in May. <laughs> I know people were swimming in the D in the Highlands. That's how warm it was. Wow. Bonkers. I had a mint chocolate chip ice cream. Oh. Bloody great. <laughs> Joy. <laughs> <laughs> it's the little things. Isn't it? It's the little yeah. things. I read um, Red Life and Fate with my feet in a river. It's great. Oh, it's really lovely. good. Yeah. Excellent. Anyway, we are back to it, aren't we? Back. Back for another episode. Back for another episode. And actually. A really fascinating episode. Do you say uh, that every week. time? I know, but I think this one particularly, okay. like without indulging in hyperbole. Yeah. Why? Who did you speak to? Well, um, I spoke to Sir David Omond, who used to run GCHQ and also used to be a, an intelligence advisor uh, in the cabinet office. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about his new article uh, in the Chatham House Journal of Cyber Policy, the Which first we time haven't... that we have featured yeah we haven't the featured them before who are who are great and who are really publishing a lot of cutting edge research on, yeah. on cyber issues um and his article looks particularly at russian interference well actually generally the concept of intervention and foreign subversion yeah. of states as it is becoming transformed by the digital sphere okay so how how are people using cyberspace to interfere abroad right. in the affairs of other states. Um, and it's really, really fascinating. Was he quite uh, candid? Uh, yes, yeah. Um, he had some views? Uh, definitely some views, but uh, but we'll have to wait for those. But yeah, uh, yeah um, suffice to say, there was some very interesting things said about Russia. Great. Um, which <laughs> sort of brings us along to, uh, to, your episode, to your interview this week, which... I think is our first translated interview. It is, yes. Um, so I was lucky enough to speak to Nikolai and Tatiana Shaw, and Nikolai has written a book on the conditions in Russian Russian prisons and their campaigners for Russian uh, prisoners' rights, but particularly political prisoners. Right. And we spoke about one person in particular who is in a sort of gulag style um he's doing hard hard labor and is on um hunger strike at the moment for protesting the invasion of crimea anyway very interesting but yes yeah, so two russian speakers and me and then the amazing marsha karp who translated for us so thank you very much marsha you were amazing fantastic it was quite quite a testy one to do and you weren't here Ben because you were off gallivanting in the mountains that's true but but the sound is is exceptional that's it all on my own guys all on my own you were left bereft I was to to record this on your own (laughs) uh, with the aid of our (laughs) AV technician that's true who wasn't actually there but still he he was amazing Um, but yes he um, didn't leave me any batteries though so Robin I love you but you know 
Come more on. batteries, Come please. On. Step up. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, let's have a listen. So now I'm joined by Sir David Omond, who is a visiting professor in the Department of War Studies at King's College London and a former UK security and intelligence coordinator in the Cabinet Office and also a former director of GCHQ. Thank you very much for joining us today, David. Um, and we're here to discuss your recent article in Chatham House's new Journal of Cyber Policy, which looks at foreign interference and subversion through the digital sphere. I wonder if you could just begin by sort of taking us through the main arguments that you make in the article. The main argument is simply that subversion, that is, outside in, a foreign power trying to manipulate a government to do what is in its interests. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sedition, which is internal, outwards, a matter where a group within society wants to overthrow the existing order of things. And those two, subversion and its twin sister, sedition, have been around forever. Mm. So in my article, I say, well, look, go back to Queen Elizabeth I (laughs) and the efforts of the papacy and the French and the Spanish courts to overthrow her. Classic subversive tactics. And the more you study uh, examples of subversion, you tend to find there are three common elements. One is the intimidation. You've got to grab the attention of the group you're trying to subvert. The second is propagandistic narratives. Mm -hmm. So you've got to persuade the group uh, that you're targeting that actually it's in their interest to go along with your very moderate demands. (laughs) You've got to persuade the international community that it's nothing to do with them. Mm. and therefore they shouldn't intervene. And you've got to persuade your own population that this is in their interests and you're not taking undue risks. And then the third element is dirty tricks, mm-hmm. what the old Soviet Union called active measures. Mm-hmm. And they, we saw those all the way through the, the Cold War. We're still seeing them, everything from uh, fake news, hacking emails and whatever. And having done the analysis on a historical basis, and come up with these three components, intimidation, uh, propagandistic narratives, and dirty tricks, what struck me was that you can do all of them now Mm. without leaving your own borders. Mm. You can do them through cyberspace. So the Russians turned the lights off in Kiev in order to nudge the uh, uh, Ukrainian electricity companies or Ukrainian government that we are... You are not going to sell off, privatise these companies Mm. because the biggest shareholders were all in Moscow, oligarchs. That was just a a kind of nudge. It was a reminder. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not really independent. On Crimea and Ukraine, we've had a whole raft of propaganda Mm. um, pumped out quite openly by places like RT and Sputnik. And then we've had the odd dirty trick, little green men you know, crossing the border, creating chaos. Uh, so the the digital era means you can intimidate through cyber attack. It means you can pump your propaganda out cheaply. Mm. Um, and the internet just carries it everywhere. And in terms of dirty tricks, uh, you can hack into people's emails and expose them, weaponize them. Uh, you can... Uh, troll people, you can cyber bully, uh, 
you can there are a whole range of techniques in cyberspace where you can actually covertly try and influence. Mm-hmm. The best example was the setting up of the fake websites at the time of the US electoral campaign. Sure. So you had websites that were fake. I mean, they were not what they purported to be, but they were pushing, uh, for example, uh, extreme lines about securing the border, building the wall with Mexico and so mm. on, designed for the Trump supporters. Sure. And then at the same time, the Russians were pushing out fake websites like Blacktivist, which were painting an extreme view of black agitators in order to scare Trump voters to come out to vote. Um, and all of this we now know, which we did at the time, uh, can be carefully orchestrated using the very mechanisms of the internet. And that's the Cambridge Analytica uh, SCL scandal. Mm. that actually you can micro-target this stuff. Now, that's the, the main thesis, which is subversion, sedition, very old ways of conducting foreign affairs, but you can now do them digitally. But the subtext, I think, is more interesting, which is that if you actually manage to set up your ecosystem of fake websites, if you're pushing out fake news about Mm. immigrants and all this sort of stuff, what you're actually doing is undermining uh, people's confidence in rationality. And if you have the Trump uh, machine, as they have done, denying that um, black is black and saying it has to be white, so you have deliberate falsehoods maintained to be true, then over time this simply uh, erodes public confidence in what is going on. And the techniques, the more advanced techniques which have been used to target voters, micro-target them from getting data about their internet usage and working out which ones are probably havering about whether they should actually come out to vote. So you can push this stuff very, very specifically at them. That, of course, is open to any political party. You don't have to be a Russian to do that. The Russians were one of the first to recognise this is the business model of the internet. This is where the money gets made. This is advertising. But if instead of advertising motor cars and household products, you are actually advertising a political slogan, the same techniques uh, apply. One thing that was that really struck me that about that uh, subtext of undermining rational thought was: Do you think that is something that actually is unique to the kind of the digital era compared to the historical example? And if so, do you think people in the twenty first century are more susceptible to these sorts of of subversive techniques? That's a really really good question. My hunch is yes, because of the nature of social media. It's a wonderful thing. You look at the use of social media by survivor groups from disasters and disease and so on, um, and it's brought people together. It has a very powerful social presence. Mm. But at the same time, it is tapping into the deep, deep root uh, of tribalism. So blogging tends to be angry. Uh, Frustration comes out in blogging. The... uh, nature of uh, you can't express a coherent argument in 
you know, 140 characters or indeed 180 characters mm. on a tweet. And gradually, if, and this is the technique the Russians have been using, which is to get people to just shrug their shoulders and say, we'll never know the truth. So if you take the Skripal poisoning of uh, Mr. Skripal and his daughter, Yulia, the Russians pumped out, I think the Foreign Office counted 24 separate stories in the first month. Mm. Absurd stories, you know, Theresa May ordered it to distract from Brexit. and so sure. Nobody's actually going to believe that. But if you have enough of these distractions, you're actually creating a sort of cloud of smoke um, in which it, you know, people might not accept that, well, the, the simple answer is it probably was the Russian state. That is a technique that can certainly be used on the internet. Um, it's an immersive medium. There's a lot of research that shows it's very habit-forming. Any tube train in the morning, everyone has yeah. their device out. That's I mean, some of them are perhaps playing games, but most people aren't. They're desperately trying to catch up previous night before they arrive in the office and what their friends have been up to. Mm. And it is, I so habit-forming. People spend a lot of time on social media, and my hunch is that the way it's set up and its business model encourages the extremes. We've seen this in Germany over immigration, where left and right were actually being pumped up yeah. by, by Russian propaganda. Mm-hmm. The uh, French general election, presidential election, again, we saw some pretty blatant interference from the Russians in support of Marine Le Pen. Mm. Now, what interest does Russia have in supporting Marine Le Pen and the far right? And the answer can only be, I think, uh, to cause dissension Mm. in France and then in the EU and over so, the, this very sensitive issue of immigration. Sure. Yeah, and so in, in that sense, it almost doesn't matter that Marine Le Pen didn't win. No. Because... I'm the, sure they probably never thought she could. Yeah. But she was. She got into the final runoff, mm, Yeah. which made her a very significant national player. It may well be that in the United States, the priority to start with was to stop Hillary Clinton. Mm. Anyone but Clinton... And hence all the muck that was spread, fake news sites about Hillary Clinton and her health and mm. her financial dealings and so on. And then in the Kremlin, they must have begun to realise that maybe Trump had a chance of winning. Mm. Yeah. And then they kind of pile in uh, with material to support his mm. case. Uh, what seems interesting to me also is this idea that you can do it all from within the confines of your own borders. And I was wondering whether if we're talking about this kind of relationship between outside subversive elements and inside seditious elements, do you think that in a lot of cases there is sort of active cooperation between these elements enabled by cyberspace? The historical record mm-hmm. would show that if you're an external power attempting to subvert a country, it's really very helpful to have a group on the inside not this, that you will have manipulated that has their own agenda mm. but it happens to suit what you are trying to do mm-hmm. um, I mean Marine Le Pen was Marine Le Pen I mean she sure. had her own policy She's not a Russian stooge um, of course you then have the possibility 
that the internal group will then look outside for financial support mm. um, or look outside for technical support, set up fake websites and that kind of thing. So you may well get a sort of relationship between seditious, sedition on the inside yeah. and subversion from the, from the outside. A lot of the major, pla- well, all of the major platforms on the internet that have been manipulated in this way are private companies, Facebook, Google, Twitter, the like. I was wondering if we turn now to sort of ways of counteracting the effects of this kind of activity, what role does do private interests have in countering this? I mean, traditionally, it's a kind of government-to-government process, this this new sort of form of foreign affairs. But clearly, I don't know whether that's through regulation or cooperation, but the likes of Facebook have to be involved in the response, surely. It's not something that individual governments can Yes, you manage. can take it in order. You can start by saying, is a government actually aware mm. of there being a problem? Okay. Mm-hmm. And they will only know that if somebody is actually out there on the ground finding out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I think it has to be a priority for the security intelligence services. Uh, is there a deliberate campaign going on? Then uh, the what is the best way of dealing with my three components? So to deal with intimidation, you've got to have government that makes it extremely clear it is not going to be intimidated. Mm. Mm-hmm. The fact that uh, uh, over 30 countries on the Skripal case backed the UK yeah. mm-hmm. is a slap in the face to the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you've got to resist the intimidation. The propaganda, I think, requires different measures because we're a free country, we have freedom of expression. I think you couldn't, it would be very difficult to ban RT. Although, if you ever look at their website, it's got a whole lot of stuff that distorts and spins anything that's to the advantage of Russia. But, you know, that's what happens in a free country. So there's probably not a lot you can do there apart from winning the arguments yourself. Mm. Mm -hmm. So you need a better coordinated public information set up in government to push out the alternative narratives. When it comes to dirty tricks, probably the most effective is the investigative journalist. Okay. Because the who believes government these days? <laughs> but if the uh, Association of Investigative Journalists digs in and the uh, uh, Emma Bryant, the Cambridge academic who dug into Cambridge Analytica, that really exposes what was going on. Mm, yeah in a way that avoids the, well, of course, the British authorities would say that, wouldn't they? Mm. Um, because the other thing about the internet is that it is ideal for spreading conspiracies. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so I think you know more investigative journalism, which is the opposite of what President Trump is trying to <laughs> close down Washington Post, sure. quite the opposite. You actually need to expose all of this. Um, And then the final thing, which is probably the most important of all, but very long term, is education. Mm -hmm. Are we teaching critical thinking in schools? Which would be a very good thing, not necessarily just because of subversion and sedition, but because the way the uh, 
the web operates these days, as young people grow up, they are going to be manipulated by the forces of, of commerce, um, which is why it makes a lot of money for commerce. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a capitalist free country, but they need to be educated. You know, not everything that looks great deal is a great deal. Mm. Um, and to be able to distinguish uh, statements which are probably false from the ones that are probably true. Do you give any credence to the idea that perhaps international organisations <coughs> should be playing a, a more active role in encountering this on a kind of multilateral basis? Do you think there's any scope for international agreements about how we use cyberspace in the same way that, I don't know, you have like a nuclear non-proliferation treaty? I think there are two, you can separate out two things. Okay. One is uh, the international agreements, for example, we're a member of NATO. Mm-hmm. And with our partners in NATO, that's where you put a red line down. Sure. And you say, as far as intimidation goes, we're not prepared to be intimidated. Mm-hmm. That's fairly um, uh, straightforward. I think the um, you could get a very much better rebuttal unit on a multinational basis. Mm-hmm. NATO has already started to do this. And so it's invested in people to do this. The EU is doing this. Mm-hmm. You have the EU STRATCOM, Strategic Communications right. Unit, okay. and they are pumping out the examples of Russian uh, deceptive propaganda and, and so on. Okay. So you, if you go on their website, you will see all these examples where they've faked up stories about uh, immigrants raping young girls and so on in order to try and stir up hate hatred. The, there's a new kid on the block which in Helsinki which is the joint NATO-EU-European centre of excellence for hybrid threats. Right. Mm-hmm. And they've got quite a good team of people from many nations working away, writing papers and trying to sort of work through the policy mm. of what, what are you prepared to do as democracies yeah. and what are you not prepared to do. And I don't think there's, you can sit down with a piece of paper and just write it. You know, you've got to work it through and see what different nations are prepared to put up with. Another element to the kind of, you've got subversion from outside, sedition from inside. What about um, non-government actors from outside trying to influence things in other countries? Is there any evidence of this happening? I mean, it was interesting that you spoke about Daesh just, just now. Is that a thing that you see happening and with the kind of ease that the internet provides and the relative cost-effectiveness that the internet provides, does it make it easier for, for sort of non-state actors to get involved in these sorts of dirty tricks? Yes, I think it does, very clearly. Daesh is the best example, um, where the uh, production units were churning out you know, really very high-quality adverts and, and web pages, YouTube videos and so on. So it's not something that will just be confined to states. Mm-hmm. But are states the ones that we should be worried about the most? I personally, I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we've got to keep an eye on the f- fomenting of hatred within Europe over issues like immigration mm-hmm. and uh, uh, pushed by groups like Daesh with a little bit of help from the Russians if they think it's going to assist their campaign of dividing us. Um, There is a kind of difference, I don't know, this is purely speculative, but 
these days in international relations, we're used to the concept of frenemies. So a country is friendly, China. We do an enormous amount of business. It's a large, civilised country. It's modernising very rapidly. We want extremely good relations with it. But some of its actions run counter to our interests. The problem with Russia is that they don't seem to accept the frenemy concept. <laughs> so whatever is bad for us is good for them. Mm. And you have this kind of zero-sum game, uh, which is very destructive and makes it very difficult to build uh, a proper diplomatic relationship if you know that given half a chance, if they can score one over you, they will. Well, thanks very much to Sir David Oman for joining us for that interview. You can read his article on subversion and sedition in the Journal of Cyber Policy, which can be found on the Chatham House website and also on the Taylor and Francis website. And of course, it's linked below this episode. So I am here today with Nikolai and Tatiana Shaw and Marsha Sharp, who is Carp, sorry, who is here to translate fantastically. And we're here today to talk about Russia and Ukraine and Russian prisons because Nikolai has written a book called A Short Guide to Russian Prisons and in the light of the World Cup, it should be a focus. So how did you start working on this? I grew up in the family who was anti-Soviet. Both my grandfathers uh, died in Gulag. My father had to go through the German concentration camp, Buchenwald, and then the Soviet concentration camp. I grew up in the environment that was deeply anti-Soviet, and my human rights activity is uh, nothing extraordinary. It's just uh, the continuation of my usual life since my childhood. When I grew up and uh, started being persecuted, by the authorities myself and spent some time in uh, the Russian penal service. My wife Tatiana and myself uh, started helping Russian prisoners and we carry on doing it now. At the moment, uh, the main thrust of our activity is uh, help to political prisoners, including Ukrainian political prisoners. Unfortunately, uh, there's hardly any family in Russia that has not uh, been affected by the Soviet repressions. Uh, my grandfather was also shot in 1937. My mother became an orphan when she was 10, and I grew up with the consciousness of the injustice, the deep injustice of the system. When we got married, Nikolai and I, uh, we realized that our political views are exactly the same. And when he was uh, prosecuted as an environmentalist, environmentalist uh, because in uh, Russia the uh, the environmental activity, the ecology and politics go hand in hand. Naturally, I try to do whatever I can to help his release. 
to ensure him. Since then, uh, we have been helping uh, families of prisoners, the prisoners themselves, and uh, uh, lately it's uh, been quite logical that we started helping political prisoners, the number of who is unfortunately growing by the day in Russia. So I think that's really, it's really interesting, the idea of political prisoner, the numbers of political prisoners going up. And have, before we get on to like a specific case that we can talk about, have have the numbers increased dramatically in the last sort of 10 years? After the annexation of Crimea, or you could say, uh, in other words, the occupation of Crimea, the number of political prisoners has risen dramatically because now among political prisoners there are people who were trying to protest against or to resist this occupation. Because I think often when one thinks of political prisoners, especially in, in Russia, it seems quite a Soviet idea, you know. Um, yeah, the idea of dissidents. So it, it seems very old-fashioned in that sense. Um, but so how many... Do you know how many how many people you think or Ukrainians or people protesting the annexation of Crimea have been arrested? Uh, there were many uh, people like that, and among them is Alex Sinsov, a Ukrainian political activist, writer, film director, who now is. Uh, in uh, in a penal colony number eight in a small town of Labutnange. He wrote in his letter announcing his hunger strike, indefinite hunger strike for an indefinite term. He writes about 64 Ukrainian political prisoners. But he means only the people who have already been sentenced. But there are several dozens of people who have not yet been tried uh, and have not received sentences, but they still have been contained in prisons in the so-called pretrial detention centers. One should also bear in mind that several dozens of people simply disappeared in Crimea. If we come back to Alexinsov, uh, one should mention that he and his group were the first people who were convicted because of their protest against the occupation of Crimea. And they received uh, the most severe and the longest terms of uh, imprisonment. Uh, that is why I think, uh, to answer your question about figures, I think we should be talking about several hundreds of Ukrainian political prisoners now held in Russia. And so to go back to um, Sensov, what, what form did his protest take and why do you think he was sentenced so harshly? Alexensov was protesting peacefully. He didn't have any group 
This was the invention of the FSB. He only met the so-called group of which he allegedly was the head. Uh, he only met them during the trial. What he did was taking food and water uh, to the Ukrainian uh, army, Ukrainian soldiers who were sort of cordoned off by the Russian soldiers uh, in, the, in Crimea. He was tried, he was brought to trial because he declared quite openly from the very start that it was annexation and occupation of Crimea. Before that, he was an uh, Automaidan activist. And today, even uh, just belonging to the Maidan, to Maidan, to Maidan movement, um, is treated as a crime, as an offense in Russia. Do I need to explain what Automaidan is? No. All right. That is why Alexandrov hasn't committed any offenses uh, mentioned in the criminal code of the Russian Federation. And he's now on hunger strike. How long has he been on hunger strike for? And what's he what's he sort of protesting? Alexandrov announced that he was going on the hunger strike uh, on the 14th of May, and uh, it was uh, it became known on the 16th of May from his solicitor, from his lawyer, who was visiting him in prison. So today is the 11th day of his hunger strike. And why is he in a Russian prison if he is Ukrainian? The situation is not so simple, unfortunately. The Russian authorities uh, treat him or think of him as a citizen of Russia. When the occupation of Crimea happened, the Russian authorities issued a law according to which all the citizens of Crimea, uh, in the term of three months, all the citizens of Crimea who do not want to accept Russian citizenship should submit an application to the Russian authorities about this lack of desire to become Russian uh, citizens within three months. All those who did not uh, submit an application like this, who did not apply, uh, without any reason or not depending on any reason, were automatically considered to be citizens of Russia by the Russian authorities. Alexandrov did not submit an application like this because he didn't think the decision of the Russian authorities either legal or moral. He considered himself and he continues to consider himself a Ukrainian citizen. Now, when these three months expired, the Russian authorities uh, decided that he and uh, his colleague Alexander decided that he and Alexander uh, Kolchenko uh, were citizens of Russia, and they carry on thinking that this is what they are. Uh, these actions of uh, the Russian authorities uh, contradict everything. In the first place, they contradict common sense, and they are extremely cynical and brazen. Both Sintsov and Kolchenko have Ukrainian passports, but in uh, Kolchenko's uh, file uh, there is a Russian passport, which uh, the Russian authorities prepared for him, but he would not sign it. Mm -hmm. 
So I mean, he's basic. They're they're being made examples of clearly. Yes, absolutely. It's not only what they did. It's not only contrary to the international law. It's contrary to the Russian law, which was completely ignored by the court. Yeah, and also this idea that. In Crimea, you automatically became Russian. Again, that's it. Feels like serfdom, just linking people to the land. Sinsov actually said it. I'm not a serf that can be transferred somewhere with a piece of land. Yeah, with no choice for you personally. And obviously, the World Cup is coming up, so there will be a focus on Russia again from the international community. And we're. Do you think that that might help shed light on these sort of cases, or how would you like the how how do you think the international community could help? I think in this case the international community plays a key role because the Russian authorities have not been listening to their own people for quite a long time. But uh, the people representing the Russian authorities, the Russian oligarchs, have their main assets in the West, in the Western banks. Here in the West, their children live and study. And if uh, the international community can put pressure on their own governments, who in their turn could put some pressure on the Russian authorities, uh, this focus on Russia in relation to the World Cup can help with release of Alexensov and other Ukrainian political prisoners. Because I know that um, there was an appeal to Macron recently before um, he went to meet Putin to to raise these issues. And I have seen reporting saying that Putin said that he didn't. But do we know if they discussed it? We know that uh, from the representatives of the Human Rights Center Memorial that uh, Macron uh, discussed this situation at least with them. And uh, at the press conference after the meeting with Putin, Macron said that he's interested in Sinsov's fate and he watches. Uh, I personally haven't seen the the uh, authentic reports saying that uh, Macron had discussed this theme uh, with Putin. Uh, I, I don't really have any information on that. Because again, it's sort of it, again, it feels like a hark back to sort of a, an older period in Russia, where you have sorry, where you have. Um, Western governments being looked to to look after the or to make sure that political prisoners are treated better or released. I mean, how might that be viewed by a lot of the Russian populace? Like population, sorry. Um, you know, does it look like the West sort of fiddling? Let's go back a bit for, to the first part of your question. What you said about this being reminiscent of the Soviet times. Uh, that's not that uh, it's reminiscent of it. We have the Soviet times back here in Russia. We have a Russian Soviet uh, socialist republic, a socialist capitalist republic. Uh, 
Russian oligarchic republic. And the West uh, still is democratic, so it's basically the same situation. Uh, unfortunately, the West now uh, has more illusions about Russia today. And now let's go to the second part of your question. Will uh, the Russian population perhaps treat it as the interference, as fiddling uh, with uh, the internal affairs of Russia? The Russian population is very glad to see more interference of uh, the West in the Russian affairs. Thanks to this interference, uh, Russians uh, use Western cars, use foreign internet, foreign phones, eat good foreign food, carry on interfering. <laughs> okay, that's quite, a, yeah, I mean, that's quite a cheery way to end. So, um, so basically, we all need to keep an eye on this and we need to be more conscious of what's going on. If we come back to what ordinary people uh, can do, just simple ordinary people, what they can do in relation to the World Cup, for example. Wonderful English fans who want to go there in large numbers, they can simply put on T-shirts saying free sense of, safe sense of, uh, not only sense of, other political uh, prisoners. Um, take off their scarves or whatever they're wearing wearing their jackets and show to everybody the slogans and the portrait of Sintsov on their T-shirts. And uh, in this case, the Russian censorship won't be able to do very much because they can't clip out, cut out this amount of a video that uh, would be taken of the uh, matches. Uh, and of course, I, I haven't mentioned the uh, f free press, free journalists, uh, or other representatives of the free media. Let's uh, go back to uh, history. Let's evoke historical memory. Uh, the Western countries, their leaders, including including Great Britain, uh, did not uh, want to interfere, and they uh, received an Anschluss. They, they received the um, uh, Czechoslovakia, and we know that as a result of this, the appetite of Hitler grew. And everybody knows uh, what consequences Europe uh, had. Uh, you have uh, today a situation uh, that repeats uh, very exactly what's been happening in Europe since 1933. You have a very similar leader uh, in the East. Uh, that is uh, your own future, your own European future that is at stake now. Uh, it's still May, and when we're walking along long London uh, streets, we can see red poppies, a reminder of the wars that uh, Britain had to fight. And we believe that uh, we still can do something not to allow these wars uh, to repeat themselves. And the first step uh, on this way of stopping this nightmare to materializing is the attempt to save uh, Alexensov. Thank you so much. That was really interesting and um, quite heartbreaking.
that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and rate us because it helps other people find us too. And follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Nice.